0: This is Seth Essenson with North Dakota Farm Bureau, and you are on Straight Talk. And this week, I am joined by David Straley. Did I get that right, David?
1: You did, David Straley. Thank you. Yes. Thank
0: you very much for for being with us. I um, actually had the opportunity to have lunch with you at Ruby Tuesdays. Plug. Had a great lunch. You were recommended by our CEO uh, Jeffrey Missling and and Pete, and definitely the type of guy as we like to say on the farm or ranch, that you could just sit down, have a beer with, have a good straight conversation with, cut the BS, and, and can't tell you how much I've appreciated the time and the opportunity I've had to spend with you. Thank you. And we are here today to sit down and discuss your vast knowledge on the state of North Dakota's electrical grid. And before we get started with that, I'd just like to give listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit. You told me earlier that you're you're a good old North Dakota farm boy, just like uh, just like many of our members. And if you could, just please tell us a little bit about that. Share uh, share where you come from, uh, where you grew up, and what you're doing now, family, if any, and uh, we can we can go to the grid from there.
1: Excellent. Sounds good. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. This has been a great, uh, a great opportunity. We we always pride ourselves in trying to educate folks on uh, what's behind a light switch, and there is a lot, to, a lot behind it. But before we get there, yeah, I'm a North Dakota farm kid. I grew up in Carrington, North Dakota, a little farm up there on the northeast side of Carrington, um, mainly uh, small crops, a uh, little bit of other production, and um, just happy to, have, uh, happy to have had the chance to learn the mm-hmm. good old farm value system in North Dakota. Then from there, just off to engineering school, then to a master's of business, and then uh, decided I didn't have enough sc- student loans. So I went back to law school after that. So uh, I, I've got a three degrees that I'm still paying for today. Happy to do it. Happy and proud to know that uh, where I am today is because of that. So education uh, is just the base level of any uh, any good career, no matter if it's in agriculture or energy or anything related to that. But, uh, happy to sit down, have a beer with any of you, your members as as we go forward, uh, whether it be ag policy, energy policy, or value-added ag, value-added energy Uh, There's just so much linkages between our two industries that uh, you you really can't pull one without pulling the other. So, uh, but happy to be here today. And
0: uh, yeah, a lot of us um, ultimately don't put a whole lot of thought and effort into all the variables that that go into what delivers that that reliable and affordable power for North Dakota citizens. So if you could, please give us the the 30,000 foot view if you will of of how North Dakota's power grid in and of itself functions and how that may tie into the country as a whole yes yeah, thanks that's a great question and and really it's it comes down
1: to there's just got to be a ton of education done to to, to every consumer uh, those of us in the younger generation I'll say and, and the generations coming behind us we're gonna have to have some major 30,000 uh, foot Education sessions and then start drilling down into it because the grid's changing, um, the fuel supplies are changing, the 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 mix of generation is changing, and as we make those changes, there's there's going to be impacts felt. Uh, I can tell you right now, you know, my career of 17 years in the energy industry, the the North Dakota grid, which is part of the the a combination between the MISO grid, uh, the Midwest Independent System Operator grid, we call it MISO or MISO. Um, which covers approximately 14, 15 states throughout the upper Midwest. But also North Dakota is part of, it, it's it's considered part on the seam, which is kind of the 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 exchange between any two systems. Uh, but the other grid is the SPP, Southwest Power Pool. And that's, that's typically your rural farmers in North Dakota, your rural areas, uh, all your rural cooperatives feed in through that system. So those are the two types of systems that are, that exist. And I think SPP has approximately 13 or 14 States in their service territory as well. Um, each of those grids, and you'll hear about them, ERCOT in Texas, you'll hear PJM, uh, you'll hear the California ISO markets, all of those grids. I I believe there's about 10 or 11 across the United States, all of those grids, those independent system operators, those ISOs, they're all independent of one another. They can trade across the seams, but for, for very good reasons, they are independent of one another so that the whole system doesn't go down. Should one of them go down, um, in, in addition to some several other really good reasons. Uh, but those independent system operators are, are in charge of making sure the reliability and the affordability of, of, of the grid is, is for all of us to consume, all of us to be part of, all of us to enjoy. And frankly, you know, A lot of folks that, uh, you know, when I grew up just in Carrington, North Dakota, 200 miles away from, from some of the biggest coal mines in the world, I had no idea. I had no idea what it took to get electricity to the farm. I I, I grew up in a system where it was um, it was just common knowledge that you had electricity. Now we didn't have air conditioning, you know. We still had we had the old renewable energy of wind. Open mm-hmm. your door and you had wind energy. Right. Uh, that was our air conditioning, but we did have central air and and provided heat. Um, so everything that you can think of, driven by the uh, the electric motor or the electricity that powers your lights, provides your heat. Uh, it's such a, just a, a complex system, but yet so simple. Um, and Seth, I would describe it this way to your, to your question of, you know, what makes that grid work? There's really only five ways to produce electricity. It, it's as simple as you need a generator mm-hmm. and you need a fuel source. Mm-hmm. The fuel source could be natural gas. It could be coal. It could be nuclear energy that creates heat as well, or it could be renewables of some sort. Mm-hmm. And- those are the those are the main four types mm-hmm. um some people consider hydro renewable some don't it's really a debate for another day but for the most part at least in my my career of of 17 years we've switched the you know the 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 government has a lot of data on what those fuel sources are where they've come from where they're going to um In 2005, when I first started my career in in this world, the grid was mostly coal. It was 50% coal. It was about 20% nuclear. It was about 20% natural gas. It was about 5% hydro. And the rest of the other little renewables made up the difference. Right. Um, And that was a country as a whole, correct? That was a country as a whole. Mm -hmm. So now each of, as I use some of these statistics back and forth, you'll want to actually go back and dig them out for each state or each RTO so, mm-hmm. so you can figure it out. And right now, just for your listeners in North Dakota, we kind of think that it's approximately 75% coal and natural gas firing uh, North Dakota's uh, electric grid. Mm-hmm. Most all of that coming from coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's very, very little uh, nuclear, none none really here generated in the states, but we share across lines. Mm-hmm. And then about 25% of that is renewables. Most all of that coming in the form of wind energy.
0: So ultimately you had said, Things have changed drastically. Is that is that the biggest change that you've seen, David? Is the uh, the fuel source, if you will, increasing um, from a what is described as non renewable source to a renewable source? Yeah, that's exactly right. Over that over that short time frame, uh, fifteen years,
1: our grids have adopted. They've changed from generational sources of coal uh, to more non dispatchable sources of renewables. Um, and and I, I would say, Seth, that you know, no matter what uh, anybody's favorite fuel of choice is, uh, I would always describe it this way: every single source has its own positives and benefits, and it also has its negatives and and attributes that uh, we would rather not have. However, I, you know, coming from a non coal generation into this world of uh, now knowing more about coal than probably 99 uh, percent of the of the nation, that it it is such a valuable commodity that we control within our own borders mm-hmm. right here under our own soils you know obviously there's a lot of benefit that it provides we we are very proud that we're able to power our lives we've come so far in such a short time frame from the the last 60 years having uh, doubled our our production in coal growing our gdp by 167% uh, reducing our overall uh, emission limits, if you can believe it, by ninety three percent of that same time frame, um, it's actually abs- absolutely astronomical what we've done under Cole's watch. And you know, some folks they don't they don't care for it. They think it's uh, the wrong field choice. They think it's uh, contributing to climate change in a way that's going to be ca- catastrophic. They want to take us down a different path. No matter which path we choose, we just all as as consumers need to know one thing: somebody's going to pay the bill. And, uh, you know, you can, you can have your affordable, reliable, clean coal technologies that provide us all these benefits,
0: or you can have something else.
1: And when you get to that something else, what
0: are you giving up? That's absolutely right. Everything's a trade-off. David, I think you made some really good points, and you provided a very clear picture of how all of this ties together. Do you think that ultimately the development of some of these renewable energy sources has led to some of the the, the growing pains that we see? Um, as you described earlier, um, they have they have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. Um, whether it be coal, whether it be wind. Um, is is it a question of just just trying to 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 move some of those things that maybe 10 15 20 years ago weren't in the mix trying to work out how they they share that that electrical grid within those ISOs um or or is it uh more more of an issue of growing pains within the regulatory environment and i guess my my other question would be is in your opinion what do you think some possible common sense market solutions that would exist to 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 lead to continued reliability and affordability for north dakota citizens ultimately that's fine you don't have to like coal and you don't have to like natural you know natural gas because it is a not renewable option but ultimately um like you said There, there is a price to pay. It is there. It is available. Um, What are your, what are your thoughts on that, sir? Yeah,
1: that's that's another great question, and I'd start with the end in mind, and that is um, asking and posing the question of what is it that we want. Um, I I think we all, as consumers, whether you're in the ag world, whether you're in the energy world, heck, whether you're a little small business providing uh, farm equipment to uh, to your local farmers, I think we all want and can agree upon that we all want clean air. We all want clean land we want clean water and we can, we can have those things. Correct. We, we, we think we're living under those conditions today. Absolutely. Um, As far as your question regarding the, you know, what kind of solutions we can offer, I I think as we make some of these trade-offs, as we make some of these portfolio standards change, I think the consumer at the end of the day just needs to know what, actual product they're buying. Electricity, unlike, unfortunately, unlike a a hamburger patty, unlike a steak, Mm -hmm. unlike a, Heck, the price of a cow that you might buy at the New Salem sales rink. Right. Uh, they're different. They're not a commodity you can park on a shelf. You can't, you can't go pick up a case of electricity at your, uh, right. at your local store. Uh, it's real time. It's live. In fact, right now, as your listeners are listening to this, as we're, as we're sitting here in this beautifully warmed up room with lights on, someone right now in north dakota is pushing coal into a hopper that's that's being consumed to turn a generator right live right now it's 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 absolutely fascinating that that's happening 24/7 and as as we continue to to make those changes We just have to know what we're giving up and we have to know what we're paying for i always tell my um i always tell my co-directors at uh, Capital electric uh a a board which i serve on here for our local cooperative happy to serve proud to serve uh happy to carry the voice of those folks that are you know a lot of coal miners live in that district happy Mm -hmm. to provide that that service i always tell them just remember um in the coldest of nights and in the hottest of summer days, you can thank a coal miner cause you're getting that electricity from those folks. Right. And I also think Seth, you, you probably tripped upon a good question of the educational experience, but what's what's recently happened in Texas as we continue to change this grid, where are the vulnerabilities and, and where, are we, where are we vulnerable in terms of our overall grid structure so that you and I together, uh, when we can't go buy that case of electricity off the right. shelf, we're all consuming it at the same time, and we're also uh, we're also vulnerable. So when it goes off, that nobody gets the case of electricity. So I think Texas provides the absolute perfect example of what happens when policymakers don't get it right up front. Uh, you can point to California just a few short years ago in the brownouts, the blackouts that were happening, still currently happening on a regular basis,
0: as I understand it.
1: Exactly right, and they're they're really in a crunch. Because what they've done is they've completely shut off their coal sources, so they're very reliant on natural gas, and natural gas is a great fuel. Uh, there's no there's no harm in, in trying to compete in the open market. We just, you know, I can say from a, from a coal perspective, we just want to compete in an open market. Right. We just want to tr- be treated fairly. The rules should be the same for everyone. We absolutely, positively know, hands down, we can beat, even when, when folks talk about cheap, affordable natural gas, we are currently... Even at cheap, affordable natural gas, we're still under the production prices of cheap, Mm -hmm. natural, affordable gas. So when someone says, well, there's so much natural gas and we can just use it, it's cheap. And uh, I would also point them back to our own government and our own, our own people who it wasn't just, but one decade ago where gas prices were 14, 15 bucks a decatherm. And some cases, unfortunately, you couldn't get it some manufacturers recently had to be shut off. Um, We've had time and time experience of that. And that's not to pick on the natural gas folks, those that's a great fuel. Um, And maybe I would give a shout out to a Senator who kind of once reminded me that, you know, we we could use our natural gas for burning electricity, but we could also use whiskey to wash our dishes. (laughs) And,
0: you know, why would you use that precious fuel and that precious, uh, you know, precious commodity in that way? So an expensive one, I might add, I just filled for a buck 99 cash yesterday. It is uh, it, it, in a world of um, you know trying to compete fairly. Um,
1: we think that's the only way to really take us out in terms of uh, you know overregulating, putting additional costs on that don't matter. You know those are those are problems for we can talk about another day. But I, I want to circle back to this Texas grid. Um, you know has California experienced the same thing? Texas got themselves into the same trouble. Um, that that, in my opinion, I think other RTOs are kind of marching towards that same thing, and that is as they reduce their fuel choices, as they restrict what they, uh, what their utility folks can can use to generate this these electricity, they find themselves in a place where, unless you have dispatchable energy, you don't get to really control when the wind blows, and when s and when the sun's shining and for, for other generation sources. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that you have to recognize, you yeah, you can you can pick future days ahead, uh, market, and kind of predict where you think those are going to be. However, for non-dispatchable sources, without some sort of a major breakthrough in battery technology, which there hasn't been since 29 years ago, when the lithium-ion battery was, you know, really went into mm-hmm. the mainstream. And with that, If you look back over the last 10 years ago in 2010, here's the Texas, the ERCOT, you'll hear it is called. In 2010, coal was providing 40% of the electricity in Texas and the ERCOT grid. Mm -hmm. And today it's at 20%. Mm -hmm. Nuclear provided about 10%. It's still at about 10%. Mm -hmm. Natural gas went from 40% up to 50%. Mm -hmm. And the other portion was the wind and the renewables, mostly in the form of wind in Texas, went Mm -hmm. from 8% to approximately 20%. And with that,
0: what you'll see is so like, what caused that? Was it I'm sorry to interrupt you, but do it just for for our listeners' sake, was that mandates of source? is that was that was that the government saying we need to we need to have a progressive policy of more renewable energy, or was that the the fact that that wind could sell it cheaper? Um, what 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 did cause that over the course of the last ten years? That is a great question regarding transparency in our government
1: and the lack thereof. <laughs> uh, to me, to me, what I would say is I, I firmly believe that the biggest driver towards wind energy uh, from utilities and and wind developers has been the the production tax credit. It is a it is a credit that's been given away by the government that's so large, they can actually drive the price
0: into a negative commodity trading facility. Mm-hmm. So, y- you, when so in that, essence, the the government is incentivizing new production. Correct.
1: The government, so how that uh, production tax credit works or the PTC uh, originally came out in the early nineties is it's been extended, I think 16, 14 to 16 times. I don't remember the exact number off mm-hmm. the top of my head. Uh, it's been extended a number of times. It what it does is it it creates an incentive for someone to put up a uh, a wind production facility mm-hmm. once it starts producing they get a certain uh, dollar per megawatt mm-hmm. and they're given that in the in the form of a credit and they can actually use that then and sell it to the utilities create their revenue source mm-hmm. and drive the price for that generation source down the problem is the grid can only accept again just like that case of case of electricity you don't get to add an extra case to the shelf it's live. So when, when you're putting on a megawatt of something else, it drives something else offline. And I think it's pretty common knowledge, but just in case uh Colt. Coal plants weren't really meant to cycle on and off, on and off. It's they don't have a switch. You're saying they don't have they don't have a switch. That's a great pun. Uh, what they do have is the capabilities of once they're up and running, uh, you can think of it. Most of them, I would say, average at about a one megawatt a minute. They can continue coming online. So if you want to ramp up for a couple hundred megawatts, you need a couple hundred minutes and. You know, it's that instantaneous, you need the grid live 100% of the time. You can't afford a couple seconds off. Uh, so that's it, it, it just is real live time. So as you're driving other sources on, something else is coming offline. And when you have a non-dispatchable energy source, it's first priority on the grid. It comes on, it kicks something else off. And then when it goes away, you have the situation that happened in Texas. You don't have any electricity. Nobody's got it available. Nobody's putting a case of electrons on the shelf anymore. Correct.
0: <clears throat> coming full circle back to, te- uh, to Texas. I'm sorry to interrupt you for the second time David, but in, in your opinion, what opportunities do we have to learn um, from Texas I mean obviously we don't wish um, that you know a couple million people go without power for the better part of a week. I mean certainly as as a farm boy and myself uh, growing up on a livestock ranch, I'm ashamed to say it. I mean, the power here has been so reliable. We don't even have three generators that, that would require to run our three separate wells to get all of our cattle. I mean, so certainly it's easier to learn from somebody else's misfortune other than your own. Um, the last time that I can remember going, um, a matter of more than a day without power was probably that storm in 97. Is that what it was? I was, I was just a kid. I think it was 97. You're you uh, you were getting the, the first degree under your belt by then. I'm nodding
1: because uh, that this this was my first degree in engineering, and uh, look back and go, yeah, that was um, that was a that was a system based upon not that we didn't have fuel, but on a mechanical uh, issues of uh, infrastructure of, of infrastructure of tree branches on lines down lines power lines that split. Um, you're talking mechanical issues there, not a lack of fuel, so more weather related and and um, structural. Um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, to circle back to that Texas and what can we do, how can we fix it? What can we, what can we offer for solutions? You know, our, our number one driver, we've been long in the tooth on asking for that uh, production tax credit to go away. Um, you know, I'll I'll share a little, a little bit of reasoning with your, your listeners out there that, um, if you think the, the wind production has, has gotten it, um, a little bit unfairly, um, I'll, I'll say preview the next, the next decade and say, you should see what the government's going to give to the solar industry. Uh, I, I laugh half half uh, jokingly, but you know these are our elected officials making these decisions. Some of them have already been in place; they're already available today. You know, I've been also very high on offering any new technology. I don't call it a subsidy, but offering them a discounted rate into the marketplace to get them up. Because look, at the end of the day, Seth, if if you, your listeners, me, uh, my family, if we could actually produce win at a negative price, that would be awesome. Correct. All, all of us could benefit from that. We, Absolutely. We as consumers could produce our, we could produce uh, our cattle cheaper. We could produce our, our, our grains cheaper. We could use less energy. That's, that's, that's a, that's a win-win. However, when we all are paying our federal taxes and I know your listeners are all paying their federal taxes.
0: I hope when so. That,
1: when that, when that money is then used against us to knock out you know the the coal industry and 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 take away some of these coal jobs that's just
0: insulting that hurts you know i think it's it's kind of um, sounds like crony capitalism i won't ask you to comment on that one bit
1: uh, it is a bit much and you know the first 5 to 10 years
0: probably okay
1: but we're going on our 30th year. And also just remember that it carries forward 10 years once
0: you once you start that. So we're gonna be going into 40 some years of production tax credit. I'll just comment again. It doesn't, I don't know that it sounds all that sustainable to me. Um, can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Obviously a very knowledgeable man, 17 years in this business. Uh, wife, three children, I think you mentioned. We were at lunch. We could not have a beer. The next time I come into town, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna have a steak and uh, and definitely maybe a beer. Can't thank you enough, David. Thank you so much for educating me and the opportunity to educate our listeners. This is Straight Talk with NDFB, and I think that that's exactly what this has been. Can't thank you enough. And that's going to do it for me today. Thank you to my gracious guest, Mr. David Straley. Please enjoy Pete's one-minute pause, followed by my co-host Emery and her interview with North Dakota State Senator Jessica Bell and their discussion on the grid.
2: Well, we'll start Pete's one-minute pause with this little tidbit. The legislature is at its halfway point. Bills are crossing from the House to the Senate. And a bill failed on the House floor that brought something to light that is interesting for our members to consider. House Bill 1024 was the bill that would fund the Ethics Commission. As you recall, the Ethics Commission was mandated by a vote of the people changing uh, the Constitution of the state to mandate an Ethics Commission. So the legislature is obligated to fund it. There were some questions on the floor on whether that funding is actually giving us any bang for the buck, considering how many cases of ethics violations have been brought up and how many have been acted upon uh, for a half a million dollar budget. That bill failed, was brought back to committee and is now before the entire House again to see if it can pass. But it's a reminder to us all to be careful of what we ask for when we vote for referendums that can change our constitution and that 50 percent of the voters plus one person can change the constitution in North Dakota. NDF, B has policy that says there should be a higher standard for constitutional measures. We hope that someday down the road, the legislature will act on this and it will be a little harder for outside money sources from changing the constitution and uh, have us hamstrung with some things that maybe the people in North Dakota don't know how much expense they're having to pay for when they pass a constitutional measure. This has been Pete's One Minute Pause.
3: This is Emery Melhoff, your North Dakota Public Policy Liaison, and I am here with Senator Jessica Bell. Senator Bell is the Chairman of Finance and Tax, and she's here to chat with me today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? And-
4: I'd be happy to. Um, I'm the State Senator for District 33. I have been in the legislature for About nine years now, Um, it seems a little crazy that I've been doing it that long Um, and I've had a a really interesting experience uh, serving on industry, business and labor, finance and tax and energy and natural resources over the years. Um, I grew up on a farm and ranch just six miles north of Dodge, North Dakota. I didn't stray too far from there. I went to NDSU, got my Bachelor of Science in Economics and Natural Resources Management. Um, kind of by accident almost, I was looking for something ag-related and engineering-related because I thought engineering was a path for me until I took a few courses and realized that was too much computer time for me. I needed to be outside. Um So I stumbled into the program that I just fell in love with, uh, and then I stumbled into the coal mining world. I grew up just 20 miles um, cross-country from the biggest coal mine in the state, largest lignite coal mine in the country, actually. I started an internship there when I was in school, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired by them full-time shortly after I graduated. Um, And that was a time when North Dakota looked very differently than it does now. It was not easy for a professional to get a job in Western North Dakota. There wasn't much for economic activity other than The way I grew up with farming and ranching. And so I knew that I didn't want to go home and take over the ranch. My brother has done that and I get to go out and help as, as much as I, as I can. I've got a flexible schedule with work now. So I get to do a lot more than, um, than I was getting to for the last decade. But I'm really enjoying that. Dad and um, Lane run about 500 head of cattle, and so uh, there's always a lot of work to yeah. be done, certainly. But as I've progressed in my career with the company, I work for our corporate office now. I'm the environmental manager for our North Dakota operations, so I oversee all three North American coal, coal minings, environmental departments. And that's been a very fun transition. It allows for me to work on more of the regulatory aspect, mostly at the federal level, than um, the day-to-day activities at the mine, which um, has been great experience to help me try and guide regulations in a way that that makes sense, common sense.
3: Maybe you could just tell us just a brief look at what an electrical grid is and what it does.
4: Oh, awesome. Yes, I certainly can. Electric grid-wise, here in North Dakota – it's not very straightforward. So I will actually, I think, start with an explanation of Texas's, and then I can kind of expand from there. But Texas, like they do with a lot of things, they're bigger and better. And so they've got their own electric grid in Texas. And so they have a bunch of different generators and a different mix of um, energy, uh, baseload power with coal and gas and nuclear, and then renewables like wind and solar. And they all work together together. Um, In harmony on the grid, usually when everything is working the way it's supposed to. And, you know, electrons are running everywhere. And the regional transmission operator in Texas is called ERCOT. And they're the ones who take all the electrons and get them where they need to go and make sure that the grid stays up and running. Now, here in North Dakota, it's more complicated than that. We have a lot of baseload generators. We also have a lot of renewable energy. We have about 30% renewable energy across the state. The remaining is coal-fired generation, as well as a a little bit of natural gas, a little bit of solar and some hydroelectricity from Lake Sakakawea. And those all work in harmony together here as well, but on two different regional transmission um, operator systems. We've got the MISO grid and the SPP grid. And MISO is what takes up a majority of North Dakota. And then our cooperative base in electric is on the SPP system. And so they also work together in harmony. Electrons can go back and forth between SPP and MISO. And they do that in a way that makes sense when everything is uh, business as usual. Now, what we've experienced this last week was anything but business as usual. Um, And especially going back to the the Texas grid, uh, what happened there was... They had a bunch of things happen kind of all at once, and one of that was they've got 25% uh, renewables on their system, and those weren't operating. And so when those dropped, and then a couple of other things happened with the natural gas and the coal facilities, everything tripped offline to a point where there weren't enough electrons on the system. And so things trip, just like you can trip a breaker at home. That's oversimplifying it. but um, And that's what was starting to happen in SPP uh, here with Basin Electric and Bismarck when people were experiencing rolling blackouts this past Tuesday. Um, that was a result of of ele- not enough electrons on the system. And so just our our breakers could have tripped too. So instead of having everything trip to a point where it takes a really long time to get electricity back on the system, they pick a few people to take the electrons from. Uh, that's why we experienced those rolling blackouts and um, it just so happened that the legislative leadership had a bill that they had introduced that we had scheduled a hearing for where we were hearing about the issues um, and the
3: concerns that we have with reliability and baseload just here in our state a lot of our producers had faced concerns with waters freezing up it, it just shows the dependency that we have on electricity in our operations because you have situations where where you know Know, your cattle is freezing up on an already really cold day or you really start begin to just have confidence that when you turn on the light switch it's gonna it's gonna be there i'm sure with your egg background you can definitely see how important it is to have that reliability there I had to giggle.
4: I would not. It's not funny. <laughs> but um, I had talked to numerous people on Tuesday who got to the Capitol building for work in the morning. And they said, yeah, my power went out just as I was leaving the house. So it didn't really affect me getting ready in the morning. And I thought to myself – what a lovely luxury. Um, mm-hmm. It's nice for the people who go back and forth from the Capitol every day. They didn't have to worry about their power going out. They knew, or we hoped at least, that it would be back on within an hour timeframe. It was everything, you know, worked as it was supposed to. I think there should be better planning and how that all worked, but that's a conversation for a different <laughs> day. But I know that um, our livestock operators can't handle when it's 30 below, you can't handle a power outage for even an hour because that causes problems far beyond what anyone within those capital, the capital building is even thinking about. Um, and for our farming community too, if you've got a grain bin full of wet grain, you need your dryers to run. Mm-hmm. And so that reliable power is important all across the spectrum. And we have gotten to a point where we expect our lights to go on our dryers to run, our heaters to work. Mm -hmm. And and I think we should. We live in America. This is a place where we should be able to know that our lights will will turn on. And that's our responsibility, I think, as policymakers. We've had a lot of finger-pointing over the years. Like, Mm -hmm. you aren't responsible here in North Dakota for reliable power. That's up to the regional transmission operators like MISO and SPP, who are regulated by FERC through the federal government. Um, That's all really boring. But it's all been a game of finger pointing when it comes to reliability. And so that's why this past summer, legislative leadership decided to to get this bill drafted. They said, we need, we need to be the leaders here. You've seen states – I work closely with legislators from states like Wyoming and Texas um, who have attempted to do similar things, to change the regulations, to incentivize Keeping what's already in place instead of tearing down and building new, which is the way a, a utility makes money. They can get a rate of return from the people who buy the electricity mm-hmm. if they tear down their old stuff and they build the new stuff. It's the way the regulations are set up. And so I've got a couple of pieces of legislation to change that. I think this um, bill that leadership has is a step in the right direction as well. I don't like the form it's in that we kicked it out of committee. We took a lot of what I'd call the teeth out. I'm ready to take a step toward Mm -hmm. ensuring reliability here in North Dakota. And I hope I can bring everybody along
3: with me. It's really interesting to me that... The leaders, they must have been a little bit of forecasters because they had already seen some questionability with the electric grid, because it just is so interesting to me that it just happened to be a coincidence, right, that the hearing for the grid reliability, um, both the resolution and the bill, happened to coincide perfectly with those blackouts. It was just a punch to show, no, this is serious. We we really need to um, seriously look at, do we have a reliable grid? Is this, is this going to serve people across across the nation. Because you're right, we are America. We're not a third world country that has to plan blackouts for electrical conservation.
4: Exactly. Um, And leadership has been, um, they were really investigative, which I've really appreciated. If you were watching the Texas market ERCOT, you could see this coming. You could Mm -hmm. see a scenario where they were going to be short of power and they were going to have rolling blackouts. Now, I don't think anyone could have possibly predicted how Mm -hmm. all of this happened this past week. It was Really, the perfect storm, but it also was an unnecessary perfect storm. I think if they're they've got a deregulated market, uh, and I th- I think if we all were paying a little closer attention, like leadership was, we could see something like this potentially happening, and the steps that they took. Watching how how much demand Texas had and how much baseload power they had, and that difference between the two um, demand and electricity and baseload power um, led them to this point. And the coincidence, the timing of the hearing, I think, was just kind of serendipitous. And it it really set the tone for the hearing on Thursday. I don't, I know you weren't in the room, but outside, mm-hmm. it was eerily quiet, and. I, not many hearings are like that I think the severity of what we were facing really had hit home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hate legislating with fear or emotion that's um, I don't I don't think we make good public policy when that happens but sometimes we need some of that emotion to spur us into action mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and that's that's what I can see happening right now and if that's what we need, to have happen to get us some reliability and ensure that we will have reliability and low-cost electricity into the future, Um, here we are.
3: Yeah, sometimes legislation can seem so impersonal, and that's something for the lawyers and the courts to figure out. But it really is something that interacts with our daily lives and, and affects us. If you're good with this, let's dive into the legislation itself. So you said that you had a couple pieces of legislation, which I want to get into. But first, the leaders legislation that we had heard, you talked about not really loving the current version of it or or you're okay with it, but it's not your favorite. What was the bill going to do and what does it do now?
4: Um, so, the original bill had set a standard that basically, if you have a certain amount of renewable energy, there was a formula um, that required you to have a certain amount of baseload energy to make sure that you could provide power at all times. Basically, a formula and an accounting for how much renewable and how much baseload each um, producer has. And so, the way it was originally structured, it wouldn't have cost utilities additional money. It wouldn't have required anybody to build anything new. It just kind of would have kept the status quo. That 30% renewable point is really important because there's an inflection point that happens once the grid surpasses 30% renewables. And there's a chart. I am I get accused of this all the time where I'm, I talk with my hands a lot. And so <laughs> I'm talking with my hands, for those of you who can't see me on the podcast. There's a graph, and the line goes very steeply upward as soon as you hit 30%. And so, um, that's, that's a conversation about grid resiliency, hmm. um, which is different, of course, than reliability. And, uh, so that's what the original bill did was we're, you know, we're at this 30% th- threshold. If we're going to go beyond that, let's do it thoughtfully. And mm-hmm. so it allowed the Public Service Commission to um, to keep an eye on all of that um, and implement rules to make sure that we could stay that way. Um, The current version of the bill doesn't reflect anything that was in the original bill. I hope that we can get some of those pieces back. It's early in the process. It's period one. We always call it a hockey game, you know, period one,
3: period two, period three. Um, Conference committees, which are my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) And conference committees are when um, the Senate committee and then the House committee get together on one piece of legislation, and and they look at their amendments, and you look at your amendments, and then you hash it out together. And um, it's really the first time that the Senate and the House really get to sit down and say, okay, what did you do over here, and why did you change my bill this way?
4: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And a lot of times it's, why did you do that? (laughs)
3: What what were you
4: thinking? Um, I have such a great relationship with Representative Porter on the House side. We disagree probably 95% of the time. <laughs> um, but he's fun to be disagreeable with. Yeah. Um, we have a good rapport. And the same with the chairman of Tax Over in the House. I love having a good working relationship with the other side of the hallway. If you don't, you can't get the good done. And that's, that's what we're there to do. So our transmission authority here in North Dakota is led by John Wiedek. He is a previous operator of Coal Creek Station, um, which really has le- the announcement of that closure has led leadership mm. to this point where they really thought we needed to take a look at this. If that closed down, uh, we go way past that inflection point of 30% renewables. So in the new, new version of the bill, it's a, it's, it's an evaluation of where we're at, um, with our generation resources done by the transmission authority and then reported to the industrial commission, the legislature and MISO and SPP. We, it's important that this session we give MISO and SPP something they can put in their models. Right now, our silence on reliability in our state policy, because we are silent on reliability, we have a renewable portfolio standard on the books 25 by 25. So 25% renewables by 25, which we have already surpassed. And in our silence in reliability, we are accepting renewable policies like Minnesota has on the books because they have something on the books MISO can actually put into their modeling and we don't. And so our silence is acceptance. And Mm -hmm. I think that's unacceptable.
3: Well, that's awesome that you guys are looking at being the leaders and saying, no, this is what North Dakota is going to look like. This is what resilience in in North Dakota is going to look like. And we're not just going to take what another state passes. So that's exciting. Uh, Can you just tell us really briefly about the legislation that you have coming that will help uh, assure this reliability? So we talked a little bit earlier
4: about um, tearing down old and building new and utilities being incentivized to do that. Um, There are things that help that along, like the production tax credit at the federal level. Um, Building new wind is very enticing for utilities. And um, while I have been calling for the repeal of the production tax credit for as long as I can remember in um, my legislative career, I've resisted. The urge to try and offset that at the state level. I don't know. I I mean, five years ago, I was saying that's not a sound policy approach. However, we've hit that point where if we don't do something – We are going to lose our Mm baseload facilities. And once they are gone, they're gone. You're not going to build a new coal plant in North Dakota or anywhere else in the United States right now, even though the rest of the world is building coal plants everywhere. They're popping up. I think Japan had 16 on the horizon for this past year. And so – We need to to have policies in place to to try and incentivize utilities to keep them on the books. And so one of those pieces of legislation is allowing for a rate of return on a PPA with a baseload facility um, so that we can incentivize these producers, the, the generators of electricity, to... Really fully evaluate how much they can make off of building a new wind facility or maybe taking a PPA, which is a purchase power purchase agreement, um, um, saying like a contract that they will take some coal fired electricity. And as we look to the future, um, that bill also Allows for rate recovery on carbon capture and sequestration operations as well. So uh, we're going to need to make some investments in our coal-fired facilities to be able to continue selling our power to places like Minnesota and others who um, have put a lot of... um, a lot of focus on carbon dioxide reductions. Mm-hmm. Whether you believe in climate change, you don't believe in climate change, doesn't really matter. If, just like in agriculture, if we don't have a place to sell our product, then We can't sell it. And so you have to make sure that you're changing things on your side of your operation to make sure that you're giving people what it is that they want, grass-fed beef or Mm -hmm. you know, whichever it might be.
3: That's really interesting. That's the one question that um, some of our producers have had. If coal is so effective, which it is, at at producing reliable energy, why do we see coal plants going out of business? Um, But it's interesting to say, well, just like um, with our, our corn, if we have somebody, who, f- for whatever reason, thinks our GMO corn is bad for them, they're not going to buy it. And so if we're producing coal energy and and another state thinks, um, well, that's bad for us, we don't want it, then they're not going to buy it. Is that, that's, is that right? That's exactly
4: it. It's yeah. the same thing.
3: Thanks so much for taking time with me today, and uh, I hope that you have a great crossover week that's coming up. Uh, that's I can't when wait. <laughs> all the House bills, for our listeners out there, that's for when all the House bills go over to the Senate and all the Senate bills go over to the House and, and our lawmakers get a few days off to to cool down and, and just to relax a little bit before they, before they put their feet back to the fire.
4: And boy, so. is that ever needed. Tensions get high before crossover, um, but of course... When we hit conference committees, that's when they, they really get high. But we all could use a little refresher here so <laughs> so there isn't any screaming or slamming fists <laughs> or at least less uh, on the table as we wrap things up here. It's been one of the the most tension-filled legislative sessions I've ever participated in, which yeah, is strange. That but is. Yeah. I think maybe COVID has something to do with that, but that's a
3: conversation for a different day, too. It is. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Jessica, for meeting with me here today and... Um, have a great weekend. Thank you, you too.
0: This is NDFB Straight Talk.